are listening to Meet and Write, a podcast that dives into liturgical worship and how communion really begins after church. Well, welcome to another episode of Meets and Write. We're very excited today because um, we are blessed with one of my seminary professors uh, today uh, named Ramaz Mechiel. Ramaz received his PhD in theology from the University of Vienna and is now a postdoctorate associate at Yale University Institute of Sacred Music um, in liturgical studies. He studies Eastern liturgical traditions focusing on the Coptic Alexandrian traditions. At Yale, he is preparing his doctoral dissertation for publication entitled The Presentation of the Lamb, a Historical and Theological Analysis of the Prothesis and Preparatory Rites of the Coptic Liturgy. This work investigates the historical development of the rite of prothesis in the Coptic Liturgy in which the bread and wine for the Eucharist are prepared by placing them on the altar accompanied by the appropriate prayers and chants. Well, thank you, Ramaz, for taking the time today and for being with us today um, on Meet and Write. Michael, thank you for having me. All right, Ramaz, big question. We, we, we see in, in your studies the word prothesis, and for many Coptic people, including myself, it's a word that we never really hear or we have no idea what on earth that is. So we know a lot of different parts of liturgy, liturgy of the word, liturgy of the faithful, vespers, matins, you know, those are kind of common words that we hear. So what is this big theological word, prothesis? What does it mean? What, what part of the liturgy is that? Great question, Michael. So uh, the prothesis, uh, or the part of the liturgy that, that we call the prothesis is essentially the beginning of the liturgy, right after matins in any typical, uh, on any typical Sunday where we gather for uh, the Eucharist. Uh, typically after matins, we pray the hours of the Agbeah, the third hour, the sixth hour, uh, or sometimes if it's a fasting day, there's additional hours. But immediately after that, uh, once the priest starts to you know, wash his hands and then select the proper offering uh, from the basket of the loaves of bread that the deacon uh, presents to him, um, that's the beginning of the so-called rite of the prothesis. Um, and it lasts until um, after the priest covers the altar with the big veil that we call uh, prosferin in Coptic, and then uh, the priest uh, or uh, and other clergy as well, and also uh, any other servants, they exit the sanctuary and uh, the priest pronounces what is called the absolution of the servants. Uh, that is the end of the, the liturgical part that we call prothesis in liturgical terminology. Now, in terms of terminology, it's always uh, interesting to kind of get into the, the etymology or the meaning of, of the words that are used. Uh, typically, in, the, in our kind of liturgical ver vernacular, uh, the way we're used to term things uh, in the Coptic Church, uh, many people uh, apply the term offertory to this part yeah. of the liturgy. Now, the word offertory itself comes from Latin, and it, it, it sounds like English, it means to offer, um, but in liturgical uh, studies, we tend to dissociate the term offertory from the term prothesis, and for the following reasons. Uh, it has a historical legacy, the term offertory, in the Roman Catholic tradition. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, historically speaking, uh, typically the people brought with them their gifts or their offerings for the Eucharist, whether bread or wine or water or anything else that they might bring. And um, they kind of went into a procession uh, right before the anaphora. So we're talking after the sermon, after the readings are concluded, and they kind of went ahead to the front of the church and handed over 
their, their offerings to a deacon who is responsible for receiving those offerings from the people. Mm -hmm. And so when the term offertory is often used in, in the Western tradition, it refers to something that happens right before the anaphora starts and it kind of evokes ideas of the people bringing their offerings directly almost to the altar themselves. Now, in the Eastern tradition, whether we're talking about the Coptic Church or any of our sister churches, such as the Syrian Orthodox Church or the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, this was never the case historically. Uh, people always brought their gifts to the church and they gave them to the deacons immediately upon entering the church. And so that was, we're talking about before the service even started, and there was never a point in history in Eastern liturgies in which the people brought for, forward their gifts to the altar right before the anaphora. And so we try to kind of not use the term offertory when it comes to describing our rite, uh, which really doesn't have any of those elements that, that characterize the Roman Catholic uh, offertory rite. Now the term prothesis itself is a Greek word, and it comes from a verb that means to place forward, to, to present, to kind of bring forward and, and basically place on the altar. That's the idea behind this. Uh, and so this is the term used um, not just in, uh, in Greek and in, in the Byzantine tradition, uh, which in, in which it is more popular and more well-known, but even in the Coptic tradition, we find that um, the central prayer of the Prothesis Rite, which today, if you attend the Coptic liturgy, the priest prays this prayer secretly after the prayer of Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, in the Greek text, not the Coptic text that we have in our books today, but in the Greek text of this prayer, you'll find that the central verb being used uh, about offering these gifts on the altar is the same root as the word Prothesis. Mm -hmm. And so there's, that, that's kind of a, an argument or a, a justification for using that term as well uh, for our Coptic tradition. And even in one of our oldest manuscripts for the Coptic liturgy, uh, it calls that prayer, that entire prayer, um, which means the prayer of the prothesis. Mm. And so they use that Greek term as well. So that's what the term that I tried to adopt in my study and try to avoid using the offertory term. Okay. Well, since you mentioned about, you know, differentiating that between the offertory there is a part in the prothesis where we do say, or we hear the deacon say, pray for these holy and precious gifts, our sacrifices and those who bring them. Mm -hmm. How does that relate now to, to what we're talking about? It, is there, was there a time in history where it was at this moment that people brought in you know, their gifts and it, that's why the deacon is saying it during that time? It's a good question and, and it kind of gets us into the history that I tried to study uh, to some uh, respect in, in, my, in my doctoral studies. And um, yes, and, and, and the, the big answer is yes. Uh, the people brought their Eucharistic gift to the church. And in the early church, the rite of the prothesis in which the, the bread of the wine are prepared and placed on the altar, um, it didn't take place at the altar at all. What happened was churches were equipped with um, adjacent rooms that were kind of near the sanctuary on either side, left and right, and those rooms were used for that rite of preparation. Mm. And so the people kind of went up to that room, they left the bread and the wine that they were bringing um, in the custody of the deacons that were responsible for that, and um, the deacons you know, kept the, the, the gifts in that place, kind of safe and secure, uh, whatever prayers needed to be prayed, they, they took care of them. Later on in history, when the prayer of the prothesis developed, uh, of course, that required uh, the presence of a priest, and so a priest would go and pray the prayer of the prothesis. But, but nonetheless, 
the, the bread and the wine remained in that adjacent room um, until after the dismissal of the catechumens. Mm. And so once the, the community is getting ready to celebrate the anaphora and to, to, to give thanks to God over the bread and the wine, uh, then the deacons went to that adjacent room and brought uh, the, the bread and the wine in a major procession that goes throughout the church and then brought them up in front to the altar. It's kind of reminiscent of, of if any of our, our listeners um, kind of think of any of our major feasts. In many churches, what happens is uh, the deacons and the priest would, would uh, kind of do a procession mm -hmm. down the central aisle with the bread and the wine. Kind of reminiscent of that, uh, but it would take place on a, on a, on a, on a weekly basis, on a, on a normal basis, uh, in which every time we start uh, the anaphora, the deacons would go and bring it. Uh, now, a lot of this changed, uh, and it's not really how we do things anymore. Yeah. Um, nowadays, what happens is that the entire uh, rite of preparation, the entire prothesis rite, is taking place in the sanctuary at the altar. Um, the reason is that those adjacent rooms um, that used to be just rooms used for preparation, um, sometime around the, t the, the 9th, 10th century, they were repurposed into additional altars. Mm. Um, the church was living in difficult times at that time. Um, the, the Muslim authorities prevented the Copts from, from building new uh, buildings, new, new churches. And so the solution the, to cope with this you know, level of persecution was that our church started for the very first time to, uh, to prepare or to, to equip every church with three altars instead of just one. Mm. Uh, that had the adverse effect that the room that was initially used to do the rite of the prothesis now had to become just a normal sanctuary. Mm. And so it made no sense at that time to, to separate things. And so the rite of the prothesis came to be celebrated already on uh, the altar from the very beginning. Now, I say adverse effect, but also uh, kind of from the perspective of the experience of the worshiper, and I want to kind of shift the discussion a little bit to the spiritual aspects mm -hmm. uh, of the of the prothesis rite, I think it had a great side effect, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, today, if you if anybody attends a, a Greek Orthodox Church or an Antiochian Orthodox Church or any of those churches celebrating the Byzantine tradition, they will never see the preparation of the bread and the wine. Yeah. They will never observe the priest mixing the chalice with water and wine or any of the prayers that are associated with that. Um, and that's because it's on the, in the side of the altar. It's a, it's a secret rite, if you will. Um, but in the Coptic tradition, because of, the, of our circumstances, um, the, our rite developed in a very, uh, quote-unquote, popular way in which people are participating in it. Yeah. Because it's done in their immediate view on the altar, now you have chants and prayers that involve the congregation and gives them a chance um, both to see what's happening, to see the symbolism of it, to, for it to be kind of an opportunity of learning, but also for them to participate uh, and, and uh, express their agreement with uh, the rites that are taking place with the chants. So for example, when we chant, Alleluia, this is the day the Lord has made. Mm. And it's right when uh, the priest and the deacons are going around the altar with the offering uh, of the bread and the wine. Mm. It kind of links our joy uh, that this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it with our ultimate source of joy, which is the fact that we have the body and the blood of the Lord and that we will partake of that sacrifice. Mm. So it's kind of like in a way that we're actively being engaged and participating in these gifts, this bread and the wine, being transformed. So like we're being involved in every process of it uh, as opposed to what you mentioned earlier, that it was just like a secret thing that was done without anyone really knowing. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and when it used to be done in the adjacent room, it didn't really have all these rights attached to it. It was just a very simple process of, of practically setting aside the bread and the wine and maybe one or two prayers that were said uh, in secret. Uh, but even now, you know, the priest holds aloft the, the, the bread offering and says, peace and edification of the one only holy Catholic apostolic church. And it's a reminder for us every Sunday that this offering, this that will become the Eucharist, the body of the Lord, is what builds the church, mm. edification of the church, to make it an edifice and to make it the body of Christ that it, it's meant to be. Ramos, you mentioned about the hymn that we sing as a congregation, Alleluia, this is the day the Lord has made. We're reciting that psalm and praying it all together, which in essence has like a joyful tone. This is the day the Lord has made, and this is the psalm that we, that we, we chant and recite on Easter. But how does this joyful hymn connect to there being a sacrifice on the altar. Like we're, we're kind of, you kind of see two tones going on. You see like a, a joyful celebration, but at the same time, um, you see that there's a sacrificial tone because of Christ uh, coming to the altar. How do these two mix? Yeah, I mean, the, the paradox that we observe in the Prothesis Rite in itself is something that extends far beyond just the Prothesis Rite. And, and like you said, we, we at the same time, you know, we chant uh, the Psalm 118, Alleluia, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And, and that comes right after uh, the selection of the offering during which the congregation was chanting uh, Kyrie eleison 41 times. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of us grew up in the church being taught that it's 41 as symbolic of you know, the Passion of Christ, the 39 uh, 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 lashes that he received uh, before his, his uh, life-giving death, and of course the nails and the, and the, the crown of thorns. Um, and so, yeah, somebody can look at this and say, well, it seems to be very reminiscent of the, of the, the, the sufferings of Christ, his death, and, and that doesn't seem to be very connected to the idea of joy. Yeah. But I think this, this um, conundrum or this kind of paradox that the right brings up is very important in itself. Um, every day, every time that we participate in the Prothesis Rite and we are faced with this um, at the same time, joy and sacrifice, uh, it's a reminder that we too are supposed to sacrifice ourselves for our brethren. Mm -hmm. We too are supposed to live a, a life of sacrificial love. But the point is, there is no sacrifice without joy because a, an unwilling sacrifice is not a real sacrifice. Mm -hmm. If I'm sacrificing myself and I'm complaining about the, you know, the different burdens I have to bear in life or my different you know, painful circumstances, then that is not a joyful sacrifice. Yeah. That is simply me uh, experiencing pain and complaining about it. Mm -hmm. But the church wishes to teach us that yes, we, we sacrifice, yes, we, we remember the painful uh, suffering and death of our Lord, and we take that as our model to sacrifice ourselves as well in various ways, but we do so, do so with joy. Mm -hmm. We do so with happiness, with gladness, that we are following in the footsteps of our Lord. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, so we, we usually kind of think of them as two separate things, you know, joy uh, of, of the resurrection of Christ and, and Him being crucified for us. We kind of think of it as two separate things, but like you mentioned, Ramas, they're both intimately connected and you can't separate the two. They both have to go together. And I think it's very meaningful nowadays, especially when we hear every day about the sacrifices that, that are placed on uh, you know, our brothers and sisters in Egypt or Syria or anywhere else in the Christian world where people are literally being sacrificed on a daily basis. And it, it's so powerful for us to, to think of the fact that 
these rights that we celebrate, perhaps here in America or far away removed from, from, from the context in which they, they, they developed, um, these are not just divine rights, but also the cultural expressions of people that for throughout history really were sacrificed and yeah. really did uh, you know, uh, offer themselves on a daily basis for their faith. Mm. And it's, it's a great reminder that, that we take this action, this expression of, of joy and sacrifice, and we take it outside the doors. Like once we celebrate liturgy, that we need to take that out and, and live it with you know, maybe an annoying coworker or, or in our marriage or whatever, that we have to express the joy of Christ, but at the same time understand that it's, it's something that we have to carry um, the, the burden of Christ as well, and they both have to go together in our lives. Yes, and, and, and it would be great for us to, to, to apply these lessons that we learn, uh, not just from the readings, not just from the sermons, but even the actual rituals of the church and these connections that we make uh, by studying the liturgical theology of our church, and then take those outside the, the church into our lives where they can really be meaningful. Yeah, I like what you mentioned, Ram, is that, you know, when we are participating in this part of the liturgy, of seeing, you know, the, the, the water and the wine and the bread, and we see it being transformed during the, the prothesis, that we don't just kind of just passively just watch what's going on and just see the deacon going around the altar and, you know, just we just hear the deacon singing, this is the day the Lord has made, that, that we actively engage and participate and sing along because we have to live the life of Christ. And there's joy, there, there's sacrifice, there's everything that comes together, and we have to live that out. Uh, so thank you again, Ramas. We'd love to have you again in another episode. Uh, maybe we can meditate and, and elaborate on other parts of the prothesis, um, if you're willing. I would love to be here for the next episode as well, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you, Ramas. You have been listening to Meet and Write. For more episodes and resources, make sure to check out com.